welcome one and all to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Lower Decks podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me as always is Pete. Ahoy, ahoy, Pete. And I'll try not to bring it downtown. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek featuring Lower Decks. For episode 105, Cupid's Errant Arrow comes to you now via self-replicating fluidic silica processors. And just a bit of fleet news before we launch into the episode. Pete, looking ahead in a couple days to Star Trek Day, there's going to be all sorts of uh, presentations and whatnot that uh, that, that uh, you can find, I think, on the CBS All Access website or StarTrek.com and all that. But that's looking ahead to the future. We had in the last week some Star Trek Discovery news. We did. Star Trek Discovery, uh, as we're getting ever closer, Matt, to the October 15th Season 3 premiere date, has introduced its first ever non-binary and trans characters, uh, Blue Del Barrio and Ian Alexander. Pete, I think that most Star Trek fans, most modern Star Trek fans, uh, heard this news. They were excited. They were happy to see Star Trek once again kind of leading in the forefront in terms of inclusivity and diversity. You know, some chirping from the usual people chirping to get their attention uh, and whatnot. But I think that this is an important evolution. And, And let me tell you why. Let's go back to when Discovery was still in uh, pre-production. I don't remember when we got the name Michael Burnham, but I have to tell you, as somebody who is pretty open-minded, when that name came out, Sonequa Martin-Green is playing Michael Burnham, initially my question was, oh, is is Michael Burnham trans? What does this mean? And initially I was, I have to admit, initially my first reaction was to be a little off-put. And then I kind of spent a little time saying, what's my deal here? And realizing ultimately, you know, it, it doesn't make a difference, particularly for a fictional character. If, if that's kind of my my in to figure out new ways to accept diversity, it's a fictional character. Michael Burnham, you know, who, uh, as we know, ultimately would land uh, as, as a female character named as part of Brian Fuller's, you know, male naming a female character thing that he had from from other shows. But I think that within my own experience to know that I kind of had to take a little journey to, to say, you know what, there's nothing to worry about here. I think that for people who might, might need to maybe check their own sense of, of uh, how comfortable they are with, with trans and non-binary characters, people, etc. This is a great opportunity to say, all right, it was, it was unusual for me when I first started watching this in season three, when they showed up, but before too long, they're, you know, running the gun with phasers or doing scans with tricorders, et cetera, just like everyone else. And in the spirit of acceptance that Star Trek has always stood for, Del Barrio is going to be playing a character named Adira, non-binary character. And Alexander is going to play the transgender character of Gray, who is a Trill host. And I mean, Pete, you know, I, I normally don't go spoiler. I have to admit, I did not know that uh, that Gray was a Trill character. But what better a, a a discussion point, a turning point to talk about a trans character than with the Trill people? I mean, my goodness, we've already seen this with Dax in Deep Space Nine. I think at the time we didn't necessarily call it trans. You know, we didn't call Dax and her past 
hosts as, you know, a discussion about trans characters. I don't know that in the general parlance in the 1990s, we were calling it that. It was just weirdo space slug people. But this is the way to do it. This is the way to say, hey, we're going to have this discussion in Star Trek and we're going to use a species that already that already has a trans existence. But Pete, bringing it back to this upcoming week, tell me about Star Trek Day. Tuesday, September 8th, Matt, there are all sorts of online presentations planned. And of course, Fantastic Geek will be there to bring it all to you. Have to mention as well, outside the Star Trek universe, uh, on our on our galaxy of podcasts, our Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. series wrap is now available. A bittersweet moment to say goodbye to the mothership. Uh, and of course, Pete, we have something planned for tomorrow because we've had S.H.I.E.L.D. Saturday yesterday, Star Trek Sunday today. What's tomorrow? That would be Mando Monday, the Mandalorian, Matt, with its second season premiere date now locked on October 30th. We're minutes away, days away, maybe six weeks away from seeing some footage at long last. And uh, we will be talking about that tomorrow. Well, from that show's Bucket of Bolts, let's bring it back to Lower Dex's Bucket of Bolts as we get ready for the Ready Rundown. Program complete. Enter when ready. Boimler gives a personal log talking about the Cerritos helping the USS Vancouver deal with the scheduled demolition of a fragmenting moon. But that's on hold because of the local hashtag my moon rights movement. Media hoax! But that's not all Boimler is logging about. He's having lunch with his girlfriend, Barbara Brinson. It's been a magic month for this long-distance relationship. Mariner has doubts, and in the Vancouver shuttle bay, Mariner has more doubts. But then Lieutenant Brinson shows up, cute inside and out. She's into the primal Boimler, that man. Mariner still has doubts. Is Brinson a salt succubus, an android, a romper-wearing, ball-throwing killer? Flashback to the USS Quito at Deep Space Nine, where Mariner hangs with Angie and Nico, the perfect couple, unless he's a Hargonian shape-changer. He is. He shape-changes and kills Angie. Angie, no! Squarely in the B story this week, Rutherford and Tendi are repairing the ailing Cerritos. But have you heard about the T-88 scanners on the Vancouver? They're called to Vancouver's Lieutenant Commander Docent who has tasked them to use those T-88s to scan the simulation matrix for moon implosion alternatives. They love using those scanners, and the most scannerist gets to keep it, being a hero in either medical or engineering. They both win, and they're told they've won, a transfer to Vancouver. They try and talk Dosen out of it, but he's set on it. They steal his transfer pad. Dosen ultimately admits the plan is for him to transfer himself, as the Vancouver is too high pressure. Elsewhere, Captain Freeman is tasked with dealing with the hashtag MyMoonRights folks who all get solutions except for one red fish man whose whole moon might be lost, he says, while having a temper tantrum. Still, the moon situation is melting down, while red fish man admits the moon's population is two. Yowza. Back to Boimler, he tries to be Mr. Cool around Brinson while Mariner scans for Brinson's androidness. She's not one. Boimler has the computer replicate an outfit that's all Earth cool, including a high-top converse and a pink <laughs> Ugg. A crazed mariner is now thinking Reploid. Boimler suspects infidelity, but 
Brinson remains dedicated to her cute Bradward. They slip away to one of the orbiting platforms there to deal with the moon. Yet, Mariner finds a neural parasite sack. She meets up with the couple on the orbiting platform, but he's incredulous and ready to take a lover. However, the platform is unstable and he hits his head, getting knocked out. Brinson and Mariner fight, and they actually have similar suspicions of each other, both having concluded that the other is a parasite. They share enough Boimler stories to realize Brad's a silly goofus, and they laughingly share more. Mariner gives one more scan, and indeed Brinson is no parasite, but one is around. It's on Brad's head. Yuck, and it helped make Brad irresistible to Brinson, who's off to study this parasite. Turns out Mariner is a good friend after all. Meanwhile, pals Tendy and Rutherford are happy to be back on the old bucket of bolts, having stolen a few T-88s. Red alert. All hands stand to battle stations. Pete, that incoming threat analysis, tell me about Mixtus 3. So this, the location of the unstable moon, they need to implode. Obviously something that could really affect the populace. And we see that uh, through the, the number of species, purple, red affected. We do. And I think, again, obviously Lower Decks has been cut in the next generation mold and obviously it's compressed because it's and not just animation but because it's the shorter time frame i think that had this been a season four five six episode of tng they may maybe might have dug a little deeper into the pure ridiculousness of no you can't stop this moon which will kill us all because it means important things to me or it's my ancestral home it's you know hashtag my moon rights as i said in the recap we get a little taste here and that's probably better for for the the venue that we are in but i think it's a very star trek moment of like hello you actually don't want this moon to destroy everything as you go on and on about hashtag my moon rights yeah and it's played for some of the terror we see a shot from the the planet of the the moon breaking up but at the same time the laughs that we can have along with the situation here particularly when the diplomatic situation and machinations that they go through and that mixtus two has two red people living on it <laughs> yeah i think what's interesting with most of freeman's effective diplomacy here is it is straight out of Star Trek, and I think it's it's a philosophy that in the last couple of years, a lot of us have realized profoundly does not always work. Like, there's always a Star Trek thing where you sit and say, look, here's the evidence. Let's make an evidence-based decision. Okay, I actually don't want my ancestral home destroyed. You can move it to the other moon, which will now become the, or the other planet, which will now become the fifth instead of the sixth, et cetera, et cetera. That's not always the case lately. It doesn't feel like that. So I think that, you know, red guy here with only two people on his planet of the super rich, that if that's going to be the guy who doesn't have his problem solved uh, right away, indeed, at all, I think it's very timely. Again, under the umbrella of the show does not turn it into let's tweak those hashtag my something rights people let's just keep it moving here for the sake of comedy this is not the star trek episode that's gonna solve all of that in the minds of humanity 
the Cerritos has seen a lot of light years and we have Tendi and Rutherford working, uh, you know, to, to show us the contrast with the Vancouver. I think the only thing that, you know, makes this threat of an older starship compared to top of the line, bigger, better is how in awe Tendi was when she arrived on the Cerritos half a season ago. You know, it's it's so realistic that we would have older ships and newer ships in Star Trek. And you might say, well, what's a big deal about that? We're so used to, you know, here's the one set that they built for Classic Trek. And of course, they weren't going to spend a lot of time stressing it to make it look old. It's supposed to be great on tv here's the grand new the, the brand new galaxy class for next generation etc etc of course it's realistic that there are older uh that there are older ships there are ships that that aren't in as great shape i mean my goodness pete the the last united states navy ship to carry the name enterprise uh was taken out of active service in 2012 and only uh, officially struck in uh, 2017 so officially decommissioned, you know, two and a half years ago, it initially was built in 1958. So again, just this sense of there are older ships out there in real life. And usually in Star Trek, we don't see that. We're seeing it here now, though. And I think it just adds, it adds to the entire Lower Decks aesthetic, not just for our characters that are literally in the Lower Decks lower case. But, you know, Captain Freeman wants a better ship. She wants a better job. She wants a higher flying career. Everybody on that ship does. In the interim, they're making this ship, this situation, the best they can make it. With Lieutenant Barbara Brinson, we flesh out a character from another vessel for the first time and viewed here largely through a lens of suspicion. She is, and it did occur to me in the, uh, the orbital platform fight my initial thought was, oh, look, it's two women fighting over a man. Um, and, and while I think on the on the surface that's true, both, however, are fighting because they think the other person is a threat and not in a not a threat in a romantic sense, which tends to be your your failure point of the Bechdel test. Um, but they're they're all motivated by trying to do the right thing. Brinson and Mariner and and Brad as well. Um, it, it's just miscommunications at, at best. And then this really creepy head parasite at worst. A threat to, uh, Brad certainly is, uh, Jet, who is a crew member of the Cerritos, an ex of Brinson and credited by, um, Mariner as being the second coolest person on the Cerritos. We're going to talk long-range sensors in a little bit on who the first coolest is i think it was it was great to flesh out not just the, the the guest star this week if you will in brinson but to to add jet as a character who's on the cerritos that you haven't seen yet uh so among other things there's there's the potential to bring him back uh, but to add to that i like that Jet really is just friends with Brinson. And fine, they had this romantic past. And in the elevated 24th century, you can have that. You can go your separate ways. You can still be co-workers and friends and happy to see each other. And it really is... It's, 
it's Boimler's perception of the situation. And then if you want to wash it further, it's Boimler's parasite's perception of the situation. So I think my point being, you get both the harmonious Gene Roddenberry future and the asterisk to allow it to be this kind of 20th century, 21st century, you know, romantic triangle kind of thing. Ron Emanuel Docent Jr., this uh, bureaucrat essentially aboard the Vancouver, lording these T-88 devices over uh, Tendy and Rutherford, is a really interesting character we don't tend to see a lot of in Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, there's there's Ben Barkley, who we all make fun of, and you know, kind of Picard as a character included has made fun of him. Fine. He didn't perpetuate the name Broccoli. He just misspoke it. And but I mean, point being, Barkley was a joke to us all. And that's not a very Star Trek kind of thing. Um, but Barkley was Barkley, right? And there's got to be more of them out there that are not destined to become captains who get shot from below in the hero shot as the, you know, shot by the camera, that is to say, that they don't get that hero, that hero moment. And that's okay, too. You know, our perfect Star Trek future can have people that aren't meant to be the highest of flyers, yet still there is a place for Ron Emanuel Dosen Jr. And, you know, I think we all have felt situations where you say, I think I'm out of my element here. And, you know what, props to Dosen for realizing maybe the Vancouver isn't the place for him. That's okay. And then this neural parasite, Guga, something that we suspect all along is actually there yeah and i think that it's a great way for the show to present boimler's boimler's problem it the show is having its cake and eating it too which is to say on the one hand we can kind of be we can sit here from our 21st century point of view and say a guy like boimler and and a gal uh like brinson no way and again, we're bringing 21st century baggage. Hopefully in the 21st century, we're not so kind of judgmental. Uh, but we get that, we get them having the pair and then we get the asterisk of, well, maybe it actually was because of this other thing. So you again, you get that dialogue from reaching for, for perfection, but the viewers are not living in perfection. So this parasite is the bridge between the two. Pete, let's get some theories up on the long-range sensors. Is the fact that Boimler is able to get a girlfriend, is that the most troubling thing of this episode? Because some people say, how could Star Trek people get boyfriends or girlfriends? It is not, and uh, I take offense at the question. <laughs> a bit more seriously, uh, perhaps it isn't a theory, but here's a geek moment here. You realize that that cartoon presentation of the Quito at Deep Space Nine that's the first time that we've seen an Olympic class ship in the prime timeline uh, ever. It was in the fake all, uh, anti-time timeline uh, when we saw it in All Good Things. I uh, I noticed the starship design. I did not realize we had never seen one in an actual timeline. So interesting to consider that. No teaser act to this episode, Matt, right into the uh, the credits. Um, interesting way to do it. And I almost, you know, was looking at this like, oh, they're doing it differently. Is this a very important lower decks? Um, I 
think this is a very fine episode. It's funny. It's it's got great kind of, you know, Star Trek aesthetic, you know, phasers and all that stuff, you know, save the moon for the aliens. Um, and I'm in no way trying to criticize how I received this episode. That said, I do wonder, lack of teaser act, and then also thinking to the way it ends. And, and again, I want to stress, it did not end uh, poorly for me on an emotional level, but just kind of ending with like, hey, look, I stole T-88s, you stole T-88s. Ha, 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 friends laugh. I don't know that this was as well-crafted a, a an arc of an episode as we've gotten in other ones. Uh, and maybe that's going to happen. You know, we're halfway through the season. Maybe this is just, maybe this is as written as conceived and it's perfect and beautiful and, and, and my opinion is flawed. Maybe in the edit they said, move this, move that, move stuff around. And in, in the process, you begin with no teaser act and you kind of end with your B story having a harmless chuckle. We're presented with the Vancouver, a parliament class starship that Tendi and Rutherford geek out about. And Mariner is there to say it's essentially the same as the Cerritos because it's got the nacelles on the bottom and the little dish underneath. Uh, I mean, both perspectives being true, I have to admit, you know, from... I am always from the the perspective, the fictional perspective of you know being a Starfleet engineer. Uh, and when I saw the Vancouver, you know that's a that, that that's a handsome looking ship there. Um, but of course, Mariner's observation is true as well that it's got the same thing with the saucer and and you know dangly warp engines and so forth. Moons can't plummet, Matt. This is something the government made up to control us, right? I mean, they're you know they're ever so briefly is your is your modern skewering we can see the moon is falling apart uh we can see the gravity shields or whatever that are that are keeping it in place for now we can understand the particulars of it we can see this is only a two-ship solution you know there's not an entire fleet to whatever whatever everything is solved here using logic and science and care and planning and yet you still have the protesters out there to say, you know, again, hashtag not not my moon demolition. <laughs> Boimler makes the reference to Captain Picard Day. So this is apparently something known, nay, even maybe celebrated throughout the fleet. Um, I would disagree that it's maybe celebrated throughout the fleet, but I think it's probably one of those things in the Starfleet version of Stars and Stripes or, or whatever the, the service, uh, you know, news agency is, it's probably one of those things that, A, they lean into, you know, just as, I mean, I'll say propaganda, that propaganda almost universally has a, a negative connotation to it. But just that that PR value, that, that sort of perspective of, look, the little children loved this famous captain, you know, who, who, who has no wife, who has no child, who has given himself to Starfleet, you know, just as they celebrated him, we too shall celebrate him. We shall all aspire to have our own Captain Self Day. I think that it's it's 100% authentic while also existing in this world. You know, Lower Decks loves giving these geek connections a mile a minute. I think that's one of the things that separates it from the other shows, even if you go back to the 90s era where... You know, they were, for whatever reason, I think they wanted to show you this was the expanded universe, but 
you know, uh, the Enterprise is off somewhere else and Deep Space Nine ain't moving. Uh, and Voyager is really, really far from here. And look, Captain Janeway cameo, you know, like it was extended to that versus we're getting our Q. We're getting our Captain Picard. We're getting all of this stuff. We got the salt vampire, et cetera, et cetera. The show, part of its humor is just to really pour it on. We have tricorders. We have phasers. What's up with the T-88s, Matt? Are they really just temporal thermometers? Well, you know, it's funny. Like, this is where you can get too caught up in the rules of Star Trek. Uh, I immediately was transported back to the, you know, mid-Next Generation episode where uh, Worf and I think Data are uh, gift shopping for, I think it's O'Brien, O'Brien's and Keiko's wedding. And, like, it's a notion then, if you just want a thing, you replicate it. It's the care you take. Similarly, what is it that's preventing, you know, anybody in the Cerritos to replicate a T-88? I don't know, but if you go down that rabbit hole too deep, then nobody ever wants anything and nothing ever gets done. So what's the value of the T-88? I mean, I guess ultimately it's a MacGuffin. It works for both engineering and medical stuff, and it's really, really awesome. And that's the end all and be all as far as I know. The teddy bear that Boimler gives to uh, Brinson wearing a visor. Yeah. And I think, you know, I don't want to say at worst on the, on the one end of the spectrum, it's yet another, not so deep, deep cut into Star Trek past on the flip side uh, of the spectrum. Is it, you know, showing representation and diversity and showing that, uh, that disabled people, creatures, bears, etc., can be reflected in toys as well. Absolutely. So there we, the audience, can have our cake and eat it too. What else is on your long-range sensors? The Vancouver and Brinson have been to 1920 Chicago. <laughs> yeah. The notion that there's a Star Trek Vancouver series, comic book <laughs> series, novel series, whatever, out there where they have the really cool missions um, is interesting. I do have to wonder, did somebody at some point on the chain of command look at early drafts of this episode and go, you know, I get it that the Lower Decks uh, show, I get it that the Cerritos is, you know, is on the lower end of things. Do we really need to highlight that there are other cooler ships whose stories we are not telling? To me, it just works because, you know, these these working stiff schlubs are our working stiff schlubs. And to hear that they're having, to hear that other people are having these crazy Star Trek adventures, it's just that reminder that the characters that we care about are aspiring for more. Whether they get there or not, whether this is the story of On Their Way Up or whether this is waiting for Godot, time will tell, but... You know, these are all characters who aspire for better. And my goodness, if that's not Star Trek right now in a world where we aspire for better in a Star Trek fandom where most of us aspire for for better and aspire to not hear the people who are complaining about how a character named Gray is going to gobble up their parts and make him run away all scared. We can all hope for a better future. So Jet is described as the second coolest person on the Cerritos. Who, Matt, in your opinion, is the first? Pete, I'm surprised you asked this question. For Mariner to say that Jet is the second coolest person, surely Mariner considers herself the coolest person. Do you disagree? 
I do. The proper answer is Dr. Aton. Even to Mariner? Yeah. Why? Because. <laughs> well, okay. Um, I Maybe this is a story thread that they will follow, uh, follow with in the future. I will mention, by the way, Pete, that the Ta'ana voice actress credited in the episode, while the character appears, the voice does not. And that's how cool the character is. Uh, a Kirk Sunday with Trip Tucker Sprinkles, Matt? Um, I... As as longtime listeners will know, uh, I did not watch much of uh, Star Trek Enterprise, formerly just Enterprise, because we're too cool for Star Trek. Uh, I did not watch much of it in the original broadcast. Uh, I since have closed the gap uh, considerably. I guess I didn't know the fandom embraced uh, Trip as much as that line might suggest, or it's just two hunky dudes, and if so, it's all good. How about sexy people in rompers who murder you when you step on their grass, Matt? What? Is that Gene's track? <laughs> I mean, I look, I, I know I've said this in the podcast too, but I so distinctly remember that episode, of course, entitled Justice. I remember watching it when I was seven. Uh, I remember seeing uh, attractive people. For, for me, I was looking at the attractive ladies. Uh, running around in napkins on planet uh, super hot where people are oiled um, where it's really a uh, it's a water reclamation site outside LA <laughs> but for me it was a place where where a boy like Wesley could could beam down and play with the kids and see the see the oiled ladies and such and then you know the ball goes astray and he steps on the planet plant and now he has to you know be killed and not the tightest of episodes, but that was a that was a callback I so appreciated because I just remember sitting there with my parents going, I don't know if I'm supposed to have thoughts about things the way this episode is making me do it, <laughs> but boy, Justice, you did it for me. There you go. We get that flashback to the keto, something we wondered if we'd ever see, and I'm glad they've gone there at least once. Um, that it was at Deep Space Nine or a, um, uh, a, a installation that looks like it. It's not specifically name-checked. But um, we've got the uniforms, the, the previous uh, Next Generation era uniforms, and we've got uh, Mariner with a different hairstyle, and the discussion about Data and his evil twin and the Borg uh timeline estimates seem to put this seven years prior to the story being told at the time and i think that's the biggest kind of uh serious story takeaway yes you get the nostalgia points and yes you also get the information for this episode as to why mariner is so protective and you can add it to you know once again mariner is right and you can add it to her her lengthy uh you know, history that she has where she's actually a good officer with a bad rank, if you will. But this notion that she's been in Starfleet, we can now say for seven years and is still hanging out at the ensign level. Yes. Up and down, up and down with promotions. I don't know how conscious Mike McMahon and others were in terms of setting up an audience expectation for the, the secret past of Mariner and answering these questions as time goes on. I don't know if that's how it's been constructed, but I think that's what we feel where it's like, 
who is this person? What is her past? And I don't know. I appreciated getting, seeing her in a slightly more, uh, more kind light, you know, kind of less suspicious light. And also, you know, this, all right, she's been kicking around for seven years. It adds to the sad tragedy of her career, which of course is punctuated by anime, you know, animated delights and jokes and whatnot. But there's that sadness in the background that makes the sweetness sweeter and the sadness sadder. Mariner's theory board is the stuff of both long-term fan interest and total minutiae things on there. You know, some of them finally called out. We've been looking at it for weeks, you know, Oh, there's whales on it. Uh, is that Kalar? Is that instead the Duras sisters? Uh, there was a, you know, androgynous alien there. Oh, it's a Sulabon because they tell us it's a Sulabon. There's discussion of transporter clones, uh, the, the salt vampire, just a really good way to tap into 50 plus years of canon. It is. And, and once again, it's doing double duty because you get those kind of geek moments and you can pause and you can say, look, it's the binars. And, oh, I remember, you know, I remember multiple times the transporter was misused for story purposes, including clones and, uh, you know, de-aging Dr. Pulaski. But then you also can step back and say they live in this world where all of this is possible. What a crazy world. You know, Pete, uh, as wild as things are here, at least, you know, worst case scenario, the person you're talking to is like a Russian agent, but at least they're human. They're not, you know, alien parasite. They're not a, the evil, you know, Thomas Riker copy, etc. I will mention, by the way, Pete, uh, reference was made, not in that scene, but reference was made to Boimler high-fiving uh, uh, someone's fin. Uh, maybe that's a further continuation of the the cetacean officers that, uh, you know, the whale officers that, uh, that, that are on these ships behind the scenes. Cetacean ops there, Matt, and helping keep our cetacean ops station running are the good people at patreon.com slash fantasticgeek. Absolutely. You think of the salt water that must keep those cetaceans secure there. So too are the the monthly costs to keep the podcast going, keep the salt in the water, if you will. And we're so appreciative that people have gone to patreon.com slash fantastic geek to help keep things afloat. Can't contribute this month. That's fine. Get yourself over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Takes a second. Leave us a review. Takes a little bit longer, but all are appreciated. With that, let's go to Hailing Frequencies. Hailing Frequencies open, sir. We start, Pete, with a poll. A poll, I must admit, Pete, I almost forgot to post. So big thanks to uh, James. That's at Big Killin, who reminded me. Uh, <laughs> and and this poll, you know, I named him in the poll to... to you know, to, to thank him publicly as well. So your four choices, one star parasite got 3.8%, two stars bucket. O bolts got 0%, three stars. Them DS nine feels got 27% and four stars arrow to my heart got uh, 69.2%. So, you know, really, really high numbers here for a fun episode. I don't know if I'd put it at a, at a four. Uh, it's interesting that, uh, the listeners that the participants nearly 70% of them uh, gave it that much. Uh, we heard from the aforementioned James that's at big killing who says, thanks guys. I love this show. I feel like I know these characters now and I want more of all of them. Sometimes it's the little things. 
Seeing Mariner rock puffy curls in the flashback was awesome. I hope Tony Newsom gets to play her in a live action crossover. Beat, uh, never say never, right? I would plan on it at this point. It's got to happen. Uh, we also heard from uh, at Dex Lower, which is Funniest Frontier, a Star Trek podcast. I loved this episode so much. I felt like it could have been an episode of TNG. I love Mariner and Boimler. Tendi and Rutherford are cute. I love their friendship. And Pete, I think, you know, it's something we've mentioned before, but it's a great observation that, you know, though there are detractors for the, you know, slightly darker Star Trek Discovery model and the serial storytelling, though we have discussed on this podcast, did Picard maybe take it a little too far, et cetera, et cetera. There's enough space to have a mini next generation type show that still is looking ahead to the future in the template of Lower Decks. Yeah, and, you know, we're two days away from Star Trek Day and the excitement that surrounds this property that hasn't been, you know, steady for so many years. So, yeah, man, just lean into it. With that, Pete, let us clear a path for Admiral Fred from the Netherlands. Hello, Matt and Pete, and all listeners to Fantastic Geek. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Lower Decks Season 1, Episode 5. Actually, I like this episode the best so far, and that's partly because it's a more or less normal episode, not with the most freaky things. In a good Star Trek tradition, actually. What I found very funny, of course, is that Mariner couldn't believe that Boimler had a girlfriend. It cannot be right it should be impossible and especially after she met her she got very suspicious and at the end of course she was right that there was something wrong but not with her not with barbara a little nitpick in the story is of course that if boimler is sending out pheromones and people starting to like him because of that because of this bug then probably more women would be attracted to him. What's a big question to me is what does Mariner really think of Boimler because she finds him the nerd and has a completely different lifestyle than she has. On the other hand, she's fully protecting him and really puts a lot of effort in saving him, etc. So that at least shows that she cares about him somehow. She says he's a dork, but he's my dork. And again, the Tandy Rutherford story was a little less appealing to me. Which is not the first time in this series. Okay, that was it for this episode. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. Well, Pete, high praise indeed from our favorite Admiral there. This episode getting the award called Fred's Favorite. That's, hey, there's something for everybody, like I've been saying. Now, Fred also did call into question the notion that Boimler's parasite uh, pair bonded him. Um, on the one hand, it could just be for story conveniences. But maybe, Pete, indeed, this critter is predisposed to pair bonding, you know, looking to make that secure connection into which one can reproduce, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So whether it's for story or for science, to me, it checks out. At the same time, um, Mariner's always hanging around Boimler, so that could be part of the explanation as well. 
what in terms of she was there before the before the parasite bite not only that but then simultaneously affected by it well time will tell again you know here we are we're halfway through the series i would suspect that we're not headed towards romances between the four uh lower decks characters um if so we have yet to kind of have an arc to that but uh pete with five more episodes to go i guess plenty of options in the future as we head into that future how can people be like admiral fred how can people be in touch with you pete on twitter you can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R-11,512. Followers can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek. All one word with the P and the H. Like it today. As mentioned at the top of the episode, if you're listening on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we will be back tomorrow to talk about The Mandalorian, tomorrow on Mandalorian Monday. Uh, if you're here just for Star Trek, going to have some Star Trek Day coverage. We'll see what that looks like, whether that's midweek or rolled into our next Lower Decks installment. But indeed, we will be back with Lower Decks, not next Sunday, next Saturday, as we move to Star Trek Saturdays for the rest of... Uh, my goodness, for the rest of Star Trek's run, uh, both Lower Decks and Discovery. But for now, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. I don't want to be epic anymore. 